Charles Lee, and this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we're joined by Ms. Hannah Nordhaus. She'll talk about her new book, The Beekeeper's Lament. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Science show. Well, the honeybee is one of nature's marvels. Besides the obvious production of honey, it helps to pollinate untold numbers of plants and crops. Yet its continued existence is being threatened, and concomitantly, so is the nation's food supply. But this has not deterred some from trying to help the bees that do all the work. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Hannah Nordhaus. Ms. Nordhaus is the award-winning journalist who has written for the Los Angeles Times, the Financial Times, and the Village Voice. She has penned the book The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Help Feed America. Uh, Ms. Nordhaus, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I really have to say this is really a great book, uh, The Beekeeper's Lament. We should talk about uh, the story of honeybees and uh, one particular man uh, in general who's um, trying to help bees do their work. I'm curious, how did you actually come across this story? Well, I was writing an article quite a few years ago, I think it was in 2004, about a new honey-based energy gel called Honey Stinger, owned by four partners, and I interviewed all four of them, and the fourth one was this migratory beekeeper named John Miller. And I spoke with him for about an hour and a half about Honey Stinger, but also about all the things he did in his life with with his 10,000 beehives that he traveled around the country with. And I just thought he was a fascinating guy, so I uh, wrote an article about him, and then I wrote a book. Well, 10,000 beehives, I think, would uh, certainly prick anyone's interest. Yeah, I, I had not known. I, I knew nothing about migratory beekeeping when I started this odyssey. I, when I spoke with him for the first time, I was amazed that someone would bring beehives, stack them onto semi-trucks, and haul them all around the country pollinating crops. I had no idea that that, that was a service that people needed. Tell us a little bit about this fellow. Well, John Miller is, he loves to talk, Uh, he loves to email, he loves to make jokes, and he's probably about 57 now, he was born in 1954, so probably 50, yeah, 57, and he um, is incredibly youthful, and he wears running shoes and um, surf shorts and running race t-shirts everywhere he goes. He does not look like your typical beekeeper, and um, he's got a wonderful sense of humor and a wonderful way of telling stories and sort of connecting people to what he does. And he's, he's just, he's really funny. So he was a wonderful person to follow for five years, as I did. It's hard to, to be a father and a husband and a family man when you are traveling all the time with your bees. He, he spends the, um, the winters in California and the summers in North Dakota, and he used to bring his family with him. He has four kids who are now grown, and he used to take them to North Dakota in the summertime, which is where there's lots of clover and alfalfa fields there, and that's where he makes honey. And then in, um, in California in the winter, he's pollinating crops, especially almonds. So now his wife 
stays in California for the summer, and he just travels up to North Dakota. So it's it's a lonely field to go into. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, you traveled around with uh, him for five years. And, I mean, what was your impression of just sort of the lifestyle and this business of beekeeping? It's a tough living. It really is. It's not something you do to make money. It's not something you do because it's easy. It's something you do because you love it. And when I would traveled with John, we would put up in hotels and places like Modesto, California, that you don't really you don't really there's no no reason to be there as a tourist it's really an agricultural place and and those are the places he goes to and um it's it's not glamorous in any way so so it's basically it's a labor of love and uh and the book is really about it's about bees but it's also about these passionate impractical people who who keep bees because they can't imagine doing anything else well what what do you think it is that drives someone like John to do this well, you know, there are a couple of things. It's a tradition. He, he's a fourth-generation beekeeper. His great-grandfather, who's a guy named Nephi Ephraim Miller, started this family beekeeping dynasty, and he is actually the guy who's credited with inventing migratory beekeeping, which is the practice of keeping your bees in warm places in the, in the wintertime and then bringing them up to more cooler climates in the summer to make honey. And so John Miller, is, his, his great-grandfather did it. His grandfather did it. His dad did it, and then he bought the business from his father. So I think there's a sense, a great sense of tradition, and that this is the family business, and he's very proud of of what of the business that they had built. But he also just loves bees. He he's told me that as a child, the minute you know, he, the minute he could get into the bee yard, he was in there, and he still it, it hasn't gotten boring to him. Every day he goes out and looks into the hives, and every day it's a thrill to him, and and that's. That's pretty remarkable because it's, it's, it's hard to love your job that much every single day, but he does. But it's also really, really hard because his bees, it's hard to keep bees alive. It's hard to work with bees. There's a lot of logistics, and, um, and it's, not, it's not a lot of money these days. It's, the bees are dying, and the honey prices are low, and it's, it's tough to make a living. So it's really a labor of love. Right. Indeed, uh, one of the facts here says that 15 years ago there were about 5,000 commercial honeybees, and now uh, that number's dropped uh, by about three quarters. Is that right? Yeah, I think, uh, and this was probably, I got this figure a couple of years ago. I wouldn't be surprised if it's dropped since then, but I think there's people, there's no one who really keeps track, but they think there's probably about 1,200 commercial beekeepers left now. And these are guys, these are um, guys who keep at least 300 beehives and make make a living from keeping bees. And just the economics of it have gotten really brutal in in the last year both because of competition from developing countries that have started honey beekeeping industries and cost of labor costs are a lot lower, and then also because of all the terrible pests and pathogens that bees have suffered from in recent years. So this is really kind of a, a double whammy to decline in beekeepers and, of course, the diseases that are affecting the bees. Yes. About 20 years ago, little nasty little parasite was found in, in an American beehive for the first time. It's called a varroa mite. And it's just this horrible mite that, that it, used, it actually evolved with the Asian honeybee, which is Apis serrana, and the European honeybee, which is the bee that 
that most people make honey from is Apis mellifera. And so there's a mite that co-evolved with the Asian bee, and at some point in the 1950s, it jumped to the European honeybee, and it, it had not co-evolved with that population, and it crashed hives everywhere. So it started, they think it jumped in Siberia somewhere, and it, it sort of spread through Russia and then through Europe and through South America, and it came on shore in the U.S. in 1987, probably from Florida. It was a Florida bee. A guy actually found it in Wisconsin, but he had kept his bees also in Florida. He was a migratory beekeeper. And then it spread across the U.S. And hives, all the, the feral hives, which are, honeybees aren't native to the U.S., so, but there are feral hives that are escaped swarms, and most of them died because of this mite. Um, and there was a medication that people who managed their bees could use to keep the varroa mite at bay. And it worked until about 2004 when the, the mites became incredibly resistant. And the next year, 2005, when uh, John Miller brought his bees to be pollinated in the almonds in California, they were, he lost more than 30% of his bees. They were all dead. And since then, it's been every year pretty much the um, beekeepers have reported losing about 30% of the national herd, or even more, 30 to 35%. And that's really not a they, – they consider a sustainable loss number to be more like 13%. So it's just been incredibly difficult for beekeepers to keep their bees alive. And, you know, in addition to this, the, these pestilences that have hit bees, and um, I should also mention colony collapse disorder, which hit in 2006, 2007. And that's, that's the one that everybody's probably heard about in the news where bees fly off and, and vanish and all the, the hives die. And, again, there's been losses around 35 36% from colony collapse as well in recent years. So in addition to having all your bees die, honey prices are also much lower than it costs to keep your bees alive. So beekeepers are just really in a tough position. It's very hard for them to stay afloat. And the cause of colony collapse disorder is still unclear? Yeah, it's complicated. Um, you know, when, when it first came out, people thought it was pesticides, people said it was cell phones, genetically modified corn, and as they've been, had more time to study the disorder, they, there hasn't, they have not found that there's any one thing that is responsible. Um, there is a pathogen called nosema, which is a, a fungal, a fungus that, it's been around in European bees for many years, but this is another thing that came over from Asia. There's, there's a new variant that came over from China that sort of hits at different times, and and John Miller, my, my beekeeper, lost a bunch of bees to that in 2008. And one thing they have found is that that nosema often appears to be present in collapsed hives in conjunction with other viruses. So it, it doesn't alone seem to cause colony collapse disorder, but with other viruses, it, there does appear to be some sort of synergy that's happening that collapses hives. But they haven't completely ruled out other things like pesticides um, either. But it seems like my, um, John Miller, my, my guy, likes to say that uh, he, he attributes it to death by a thousand paper cuts. It's all these little things that sort of add up and have weakened the bees in such a way that they're getting all these strange viruses now. I see. So really a combination of, of things. Yeah. What really is the history of the honeybee in the U.S. and as part of agriculture? First came over to the U.S. in sometime around 1620 with the English colonists and their crops, so they brought bees along with apple trees and other things that, that they planned to 
plant in the New World. They've been here ever since, and they've always sort of coexisted with agriculture. And because there were so many and there were also native pollinators, people didn't really need them as pollinators. They were just there. You didn't need to hire them until the last century, sometime once crops got bigger and especially once there were more pesticides and a lot of natural pollinators died off, people started renting bees. For, for John Miller, he really started making money from pollination, from renting his bees for pollination in the 1970s when um, they were looking for a good place to camp their bees in the wintertime and someone suggested they go into almond orchards in the Central Valley of California. So they did. And um, at the time, it, I think it paid about $8 a hive. It wasn't great money, but it was somewhere to keep their bees for a few weeks during the bloom and keep them alive for the early part of winter when they needed to have their bees finding something to eat. So I said $8 a hive in, in the early 1970s, and the price just kept growing. People planted more and more almond trees, and almond trees require honeybees for pollination because they, they need pollination to produce nuts. They need to be pollinated, and the pollen is very heavy, so it won't. it's not pollinated by wind. The wind won't blow it into the, ne- the tree next door to pollinate the nuts. So it requires pollinators to fly from tree to tree bringing pollen. So as more and more almond orchards expanded, there's now 750,000 acres of almond trees in the Central Valley. And it's just this one area of California where it's just perfectly suited to almond growing. And almonds are quite a profitable crop, so more and more people have plowed over their cotton and grapes and planted almonds. And um, so the price has gone up and up, and they need more and more bees in order to pollinate these trees. And so at this point now, about two-thirds of the nation's bees are shipped to the Central Valley of California for three weeks in February. And I think Miller gets about $150 a hive now, and, and that's basically how he makes a living now. That's, he, uh, he, he, there are some years he breaks even on honey, and some years he makes money, but a lot of years he loses money on actually making honey. So pollination is what keeps him going, and so basically he keeps his bees alive the whole year in order for this to have this pollination payday in, in February. Okay. So, so really the almond industry is the big driver of this? Big driver. And I say in the book, it's, it really is a deal with the devil in some ways. It's, it's what has kept many commercial beekeepers going, but it's also in all likelihood what has gotten their bees so sick. Because they, you know, first of all, it's just a tough time of year to wake up your bees. You sort of have to wake up your bees from their winter slumber much earlier than they normally would. You ship them across the country to California, and that's hard on a bee just to start putting. They put he he stacks his bees on semi trucks. It's about 512 bees per truck, I think, and. Um, and then hauls them into his home in Newcastle, California, and then offloads them and loads them onto other trucks and then brings them into the almond orchards near Modesto in in the Central Valley. And two-thirds of the nation's bees are also there. So there are bees from all over the place, and they've all got whatever viruses they brought, and they're all, as he likes to say, they're swapping spit in this 400-mile stretch of the Central Valley where they're all jammed together for the month of February, and it's just not good for the bees. So it does keep them going, but it also kills their bees, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a tough deal, and they can't really find any other way to, to do it and make a living at that scale. So what else would be affected were all the bees to be um, suddenly gone? 
Well, so obviously almonds, cherries, apples, canola, watermelon. The, um, there's a ton of crops. They also pollinate oranges, although oranges don't need pollination, but they, they are rounder. They're more symmetrical and juicier if they're pollinated. So um, berries, a lot of berries, cranberries, blueberries. We wouldn't starve if bees disappeared, but our diet would be a lot less interesting and fun. It's a lot of the good stuff that they pollinate. So is there anything really being done to, uh, to sort of uh, stave off this decline? It's Band-Aids right now, really. Um, beekeepers are they're trying to invest in research organizations to try to find ways to breed bees that are resistant to varroa mites and that uh, I don't know that anybody, since they don't really know what they're dealing with with colony collapse, they haven't quite figured out a way to make a bee that would be resistant. But they are breeding bees to be resistant to the varroa mite. But they haven't had a lot of success with that yet. They're getting there. But in the meantime, they have these, these miticides, these, these chemical medications that they put into their hives to try to keep the mites at bay. And they don't work very well. So it's, it's always sort of a losing battle. And John Miller spends a lot of time examining his bees and trying to get ahead of the varroa mite and figure out what's going on and what medications are working. So it's really it's sort of triage, and, and it, it's, it's tough going. And, you know, hopefully in the long run they will breed a stronger bee, and people in the sort of organic beekeeping industry are, are really pushing people getting queens that are adapted to their microclimates and you know they they would encourage people not to travel with their bees and and stay put and just breed a better bee that way but for people like John Miller who have 10,000 hives that's that's a tough you can't do that there's just no way and so for modern agriculture which needs these bees that's that's not simply an option to let the bees die and breed a stronger bee you mentioned a little earlier that uh, other countries also have a growing beekeeping industry. Are they not dealing with the same kind of problems? No, they are. Bees are dying around the world. Interestingly, though, you know, the number of beehives has actually gone up because there are now growing beekeeping industries in places like China and other places in Asia that didn't have them before. But they are. Bees are, are suffering everywhere. I, I don't think it, it may not be quite as bad as it is in the U.S. just because they don't have the migratory beekeeping industry in quite the way we do. They don't have this almond industry that sort of looms so large over all the beekeepers. So not quite quite as uh, tied to one one particular crop kind of thing. Yeah, I mean in Europe they don't they don't migrate that much. They might chase honey. Move, move their bees to chase the honey bloom, but I don't think that they move bees as much for, to pollinate agriculture. And the crops tend to be more varied there. It's not as big crops. So it's hard. You know, that one, one problem with big monocrop agriculture is that something like almonds, it's, it's great while the almonds are in bloom, but then once the bloom's over, it's a desert. It's all these trees, that, and there's no nectar at all or pollen for the bees to eat. So, so they have to move. And there's just not enough variety of crops to keep bees in one place if they're going to be pollinating big crops. Well, it looks like we're running uh, slightly out of time. Uh, I'm just curious, there, there are some fun little tidbits here that perhaps uh, want to talk about, is that if you're being chased by a bee, do you, do you want to run in a straight line or in circles? 
<laughs> a straight line, as I learned the hard way. When I, 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 I will confess right now that I had never been stung by a bee before I started on this book, and um, and I was stung one time. It happened pretty quickly, and I just jumped back, and it was over. And then the second time, I got a bee in my hair, oh. and uh, I have curly hair, so it couldn't get out. And I ran around in circles until somebody finally. <laughs> pulled me inside and got the bee out of my hair. But no, don't run in circles. That just attracts more bees. Uh, the best thing to do is to run away from the hive. <laughs> and don't jump in water either. And don't jump in water because once you come up for air, they, they like to sting your face. They like to sting sort of the head for the dark spots like your eyes and your nose and your mouth. And so when you come up for air, they're going to sting your, you know, what comes up first, your nose and your mouth, and, uh, and then it's going to be really hard to breathe <laughs> when you go back underwater. So run away, get inside. Don't do what I did and run in circles flapping your arms. Okay. Um, and then one final thing. What is international honey laundering? International honey laundering is... So I mentioned that there's this growing Chinese beekeeping industry, and... Um, a few years ago, there was a bad epidemic of something called foul brood, which is a, um, a nasty bacterial infection that's pretty much controlled by antibiotics now, but used to be just death to a beekeeper and to his apiary. And there was an epidemic of foul brood in China, I think it was in the 1990s, and instead of using teramycin, which is the, the antibiotic that most American beekeepers use, they use something called, and I may not have this pronounced right, uh, chloramphenicol. It's an antibiotic that's banned in the U.S. and it's been known to cause certain cancers. And so um, when it became clear that this was showing up in Chinese honey, the um, Customs Service banned it from being imported. And then suddenly places like Singapore, which has no beekeeping industry at all, began importing millions and millions of barrels of honey. So that's the laundering part. This was Chinese honey that was passed off as honey from places like Singapore and Australia. It was a problem for a while, and I think it's less of a problem now. The um, Customs Service has cracked down. There have been some high-profile prosecutions of people passing honey off, Chinese honey off as honey from elsewhere. And um, some of the major people who, uh, honey packers who sell the honey in supermarkets and import it have begun their own testing programs to make sure that bad honey doesn't get into their supply. So it is a big criminal enterprise, and people are always trying to find ways in, but um, I don't think it's having a huge Im impact on the American honey supply now. <laughs> Who would have thought? Boot like honey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, it does look like we are uh, definitely out of time here for uh, discussion, but it was really fascinating. Again, your, your book is called The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Helped Feed America. And uh, Ms. Nordhaus, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right, you just listened to Ms. Hannah Nordhaus discussing the Beekeeper's Lament. This is the Grox Science Show. We'll be back in just a few minutes with the Grokatron 5000. Stay tuned.
it's uh, time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 is chosen the topic, Sweet as Honey, or Leaves of Bitter Aftertaste. So for the uh, following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're sweet as honey or if they leave a bitter aftertaste and uh, maybe a little reason why. Ms. Nordhaus, ready to play the game? I am ready. All right, here we go. Uh, sweet as honey, bitter aftertaste, uh, person number one, Charlie Sheen. Oh, you stumped me already. <laughs> well, I guess he probably leaves a bitter aftertaste because he's made such a fool of himself. But there's something sweet about his freedom of expression. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of saccharine, I guess. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, number two, it's uh, Oprah Winfrey. Sweetest honey. Well, how about number three? It's uh, the uh, famed biologist E.O. Wilson. Well, as someone who has written a book about bees, I, I rank him as very sweet, <laughs> as the best honey. He's a, a wonderful chronicler of nature. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four, it's the uh, uh, winner of Dancing with the Stars, Heinz Ward. Now you stump me again because <laughs> I don't watch Dancing with the uh, Stars. But if he won, he must be great, so totally sweet as honey. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, how about how about number five, then? Uh, it's the new mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Sweet as honey, for sure. Although, um, I'm sure that it's honey with a with a bite. <laughs> yeah, I think you got to be a little careful with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I hear. I don't know him personally, but <laughs> honey with a kick. Right. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Ms. Nordhaus, I want to thank you very much. Stick around playing our game and, again, talking about your book, which is called The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Help Feed America. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for letting me talk about my book. All right, it's a pleasure. Take care. All right, bye. And you're just listening to Hannah Nordhaus talking about her book, The Beekeeper's Lament. So this has been the Grok Science Show. I've been your host, Charles Lee. We'll be back in some more from the world of science and technology. You can see us on the web, www.groks.net, science at groks.net, the email. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon.